Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name's Craig Forces. I'm here with Stephanie Carvin, once again, high above the Rideau River. We're back. We're back. We're back. Uh, so state of the river for those who, uh, who want to catch up on it, uh, midsummer. So I'd say it's midsummer levels, some nice rapids, but not very high water. So uh, it's, it's all right. It's all right. What so, are you hoping to like rapid down well, into? Well, a person I know who, who's just, their office is just downstairs from yours, Stephanie. I've seen him out uh, uh, paddleboarding on the uh, uh, when it's high water, which strikes me as unwise, but uh, <laughs> he's quite an enthusiast. Well, you know, you never. I, I've actually, I've actually paddleboarded the Rita River. You know, and and considering my level of enthusiasm for the outdoors, <laughs> that's that's saying something. Yes, but not so. the rapid part, presumably. Right. Okay. okay. So river river status All check. Right. Okay. All right. So a little bit of frivolous discussion about rivers. <laughs> Moving on. What are we talking about, Stephanie? Um, we're talking about uh, really kind of three things today. Uh, we're going to talk about the terrorist listings. Um, there was recently. Uh, two far-right groups that were listed, which raised some eyebrows, um, but also some conversation on social media and the newspapers. So we kind of want to unpack what it is to to list someone and uh, what that actually means for, for national security purposes. Secondly, there's a new transparency initiative. There's going to be a board and advisor group on national security transparency, which we should note that a um, member of Intrepid Podcast blog, Thomas, you know, is a member of, as well as some other uh, friends of the podcast. And finally, we have a story from the Toronto Star and BuzzFeed News, which I think the lead pen was by Alex Boudelier, which is basically saying that they have on record CSIS saying that they have found attempts to interfere in the election from, uh, I guess, foreign adversaries that they're concerned about and that they're briefing political parties. And so we'll talk maybe just a little bit about what's significant about that and what's actually not that, that big of a deal and why we really shouldn't panic too much. Great. That's that's a lot. So let's let's dive in and let's start with the terrorist group listing. Part of this, I think, is, yes, there was some news, uh, but also there was a certain amount of misunderstanding, perhaps, about the implication of terrorist group listing that I saw in the ether on Twitter, etc. So this is our opportunity to really talk about something we've not spent much time talking about in the past on this podcast. So the starting point is that this is a criminal code process, right? To be listed as a terrorist entity is a criminal code process. But really the concept of terrorist group, as we have talked about in the past, there are basically two categories of terrorist group, right? There's what I'll call the self-nominating terrorist group, and then there's the listed entity. Uh, and so let's let's talk about the self-nominating terrorist group, because those are the groups we've seen most often arise in the context of prosecutions, not least the Toronto 18, which would be an example of a self-nominating group. The governor council had no idea they existed, they were never listed, but yet they were prosecuted, those individuals were prosecuted with various uh, crimes were associated with participation with terrorists. This is, this is where I have to raise my hand and yes. ask. This is in, 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 my, in my ghetto law education. When you use the term self-nominating, is this your terminology? Yes, it's my terminology. Okay, right? so basically and a group that kind of sticks up at hands and, say, and says... From their behavior. From their behavior, <laughs> yeah. right. And, and they meet the criteria for being a terrorist like, group. Like, hey, we're terrorists. Right. We're so, going to terrorize so, you. So, so, so basically to be one of these kind of inchoate entities where it's just a group of people who get together to do these things. Right. Uh, so basically you have to have, as one of your purposes, activities that facilitate or carry out terrorism activity. Right. And so we've discussed on the podcast before, like, you know, these groups, even if Al Qaeda printed membership cards and handed them out and took these things, that would be insufficient in law. It's actually 
the participation element that's the crime. So the group has to have as one of its objectives, its purposes or activities, facilitate or carry out terrorist activities, right? So one of its objectives, not its only objective, another objective may be to play paintball in the forest. But if one of your objectives is terrorist activity, then in fact, you are a terrorist group. Now, the Crown, confronted with, say, a Toronto 18 context, will have to prove that you're a terrorist group and that one of the objectives of this little gang was in fact to participate or to facilitate terrorist activity. And so, so there's a lot of things ball, you have to prove. Right, so that paintball isn't just for fun, it's it's training exercise. Yeah, so that could be part of the participation in, as a training exercise uh, in what amounts to facilitation of terrorist activity, right? So uh, it is possible for the Crown to draw all this evidence to suggest this amalgam of individual came together for the purpose, at least partially for the purpose of engaging in terrorist activity. Listing is different, okay? So listing, first of all, who's the lister? The governor and council. The governor council is effectively the federal cabinet. Right. And the federal cabinet, there are rules in the criminal code as to when they can, in fact, list an entity as a terrorist group. And they're more demanding. To be listed by the governor council, the entity has to knowingly have carried out or attempted to carry out the terrorist activity, right? And so you have to actually have engaged in the conduct, not just have as your purpose at some point in the future, the conduct, but actually have carried out the conduct to be listed. And so the standard for the governor council is more demanding. That's interesting. You're saying to get listed is even harder. Yeah. You have to have engaged in the terrorist activity. Right. Not it's one of your purposes, but rather you've done this. Right. Right. Now, the standard of proof is low. The governor council just needs reasonable grounds to believe, which is the the probability that you've engaged in this activity. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt, which would be the highest standard, but you have to have reasonable grounds to believe, that is, that there's a probability based on cogent, objective evidence that you have carried out this terrorist activity. Then you can be listed by the governor and council. Thereafter, uh, there's a prospect of delisting. There's an appeal process. The appeal process is extremely rare. There's only been one case that I'm aware of. Uh, and that one case went nowhere in part because, we'll talk about this in a second, the assets of the listed group were seized and they had no money to pay for lawyers. And so they weren't able actually to pursue the court process, which is a bit troublesome, right? It's, it's, it's a troubling aspect that you can be listed and have no recourse unless you have pro bono lawyers to the courts because you can't pay for your court process. But if you're and a pro bono lawyer ch- for a terrorist, listed terrorist entity, well, aren't you putting yourself and that's, in jeopardy? And that's a legitimate question. Yeah. There's no carve out. And so if you are, for example, yourself providing funding, you're paying for the proceedings, et cetera, are you in fact financing a terrorist group? Well, it's a listed group, right? Uh, are you participating with a terrorist group in a manner that enhances its capacity to engage in terrorist activity? Well, getting them off the list may enhance their capacity to engage in terrorist activity, right? So it's not like... It'd be very unusual, it seems to me, to be actually prosecuted and convicted for your conduct as a lawyer, but there's not a carve-out, not an express carve-out uh, for those who would assist in the legal process. And that's a that's a bit troublesome um, from we'll t- a we'll from talk- a public policy perspective. We can yeah, come back to that. Yeah, I mean, I have a question here, um, if you don't mind, because how does this relate to the United Nations uh, Security Council resolutions that followed 9-11? Yeah, so that's a different... So the the problem with this area is there's a lot of different listing processes, including in Canada. Yeah. And there's there's several different listing processes. And so we're talking about the criminal code process, which now is the one that really is operational. And again, it works like this. If you have engaged in terrorist activity, the governor and council on reasonable grounds to believe can list you as a terrorist group. Yes. All right. And then under the criminal code, there are consequences for that, which we'll get to in a second. There is also under uh, regulations, under... Uh, what we call the UN Act, the United Nations Act, implementing some of our obligations uh, to the United Nations, specifically the Security Council, there's a separate listing process for affiliates of Al-Qaeda uh, and now also reaches affiliates of ISIS. 
Uh, and those are persons, and they are persons uh, rather than entities, persons who are listed through a UN Security Council process, essentially blacklisted through a UN security process. And we have an obligation under the UN Security Council resolutions to bar them from travel, to bar them from access to financing, et cetera. But that's a separate list, and it's meant to operationalize our UN obligations. And so with the criminal code listing, we're, we're not in lockstep because the UN system is much narrower. It's really focused on a handful of notorious terrorist groups, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, uh, ISIS. Now, uh, in Canada, under the criminal code, our list is much longer than simply those entities. Right. And so if you, you can find them, it's a public list. You can look on the public safety website under listed entities. Just Google public safety, terrorism, listed entities. It'll pop up at the head of the Google search page, and you'll find that there's a fairly long list uh, of some notorious terrorist groups and ones probably people have never heard of. And of those groups, you'll find that the vast majority, I would say 80 to 90%, are ones who probably don't have what I'll call a nameplate presence in Canada or, and never have. And so it may well be that Hezbollah and Hamas do fundraising and have operational presence in Canada, but you're not going to find them on 411.ca. Yeah, it's right? it's, uh, it's clandestine. It's clandestine. Right, they do right. clandestine work. They're, they're here. They're, there's clearly operatives. We know that they're an entity, but they don't have an address. Right. So their primary nexus is going to be overseas. Right. Uh, now, that's not true for a handful of others or... There are a handful of others who did have more of what I'll call a nameplate presence in Canada who have now subsequently been listed, of, of which probably there are four. And someone on Twitter can correct me if I'm, I'm wrong in, in asserting that they, they had a presence on the ground that made them relatively easy to find up until the listing, at least. And so those would include the World Tamil Movement, the International Sikh Youth Federation, a group called the International Relief Fund for the Afflicted and Needy. And then, of course, Blood and Honor, which is going to be the focus of our conversation right now about right-wing listing. Yeah. If you wanted to, certainly prior to the listing, you probably could have found these entities in Canada. Uh, and they were they listed. They had websites. They had, well, I would assume they had websites. I don't know. I've never gone back and done this. This would be a question for Stuart Bell. But uh, they certainly were more present, more transparently present than, say, oh, the Caucus Emirate, which yeah. is also a listed entity, right? Right. Uh, so, <laughs> Which, just for clarification, was the Caucasus branch of the Islamic State, so near the Russian border, basically. Right. So the reality is there haven't been many listed entities who have brought an appeal because presumably these entities are they're, they're terrorist groups and they accept their terrorist groups and they have no incentive to ever appeal. Or alternatively, or in addition, they have no interest in what's happening in Canada in terms of the administration of our terrorism law. There was, though, an appeal by the International Relief Fund for the Afflicted and Needy. That's IRFAN, Irfan. Irfan yeah. Canada. Uh, they this were, is the case you, we just brought up. Yeah. So yeah. in 2014, they were deregistered as a charity and they were subsequently listed under the criminal code as a terrorist entity because uh, it was said on reasonable grounds to believe that they had transferred funds to Hamas, which is itself a listed entity. Uh, they actually appealed, as I mentioned, and as I, I suggested, they were unsuccessful. I suppose the question going forward now is we start to see the, the listing of right-wing extremist groups uh, that have a domestic presence, whether those entities will now proceed with appeals of their own. Uh, and one of the issues in terms of the appeal and what makes it potentially a little bit doubtful about the way the appeal process works is that the government can justify its decision to list on the basis of secret information never disclosed to the appellant. And so they can use, in a closed proceeding in front of a federal court judge, 
uh, information that the listed entity never has access to. Um, and that would include presumably classified information. Yeah, I think that's true. On the other hand, based on what I know of this process from, from working in the community, the vast majority of information that they try to gather on these groups is open source. Yeah, that's probably true in part. Um, just be for, I think, for that reason. Yeah. And in case anyone ever said, well, show us your proof, that right. they can then give them a package. And like these are large files right. that they then put out right. um, of, of mostly open source. Whether or not they use uh, some intelligence, probably, but the vast majority of it they prefer to, to, to put out in open source. And I think that's actually why some of the groups are, are potentially listed and some maybe uh, emerging groups perhaps aren't because there's not yet enough out right. there in the open source that would allow them to do it. If there is any classified information, though, that's non-disclosed to the party, it's almost certain that the party would challenge the constitutionality of that. Under Section 38 of the Canada Evidence Act? Uh, well, they wouldn't have to. There wouldn't have to be an effort by the government to protect it under Section 38 of the Canada Evidence Act Damn because it. it's already protected under I the rules one. that govern the the appeal. <laughs> but the argument would be that there's a Section 7 interest under the Charter, uh, Life, Liberty, Security of the Person. Right. The entity itself may not enjoy those rights. They don't. There's no constitutional rights to an entity, to a corporation, to an uh, unincorporated association. But, but, but the people by affected by that, whose activity in relation to that organization now is potentially criminal, like giving them money, participating with them, obviously they have a Section 7 interest. And so to the extent there's a derivative culpability for these people from the listing of the entity, they might argue that, look, the listing of the entity... Uh, does trigger our Section 7 interests, and there's a disclosure obligation as part of the uh, procedural fairness, fundamental justice that's incorporated in Section 7, which is analogous to the debate over security certificates in the immigration context, where, as you recall, the court said that there had to be a special advocate in the secret proceedings, the closed proceedings, to advance the interests of the interested party to ensure that there was an adversarial challenge to the government's claims. But none of this has happened in the Irfan case. None of it's happened, and there is no special advocate system that's obligatory at present. If this were to come to pass and the federal court were confronted with an appeal, I suspect they might appoint what's known as an amicus curiae, a friend of the court. Not the mascot. Not the, not not the mascot amicus, from the Supreme Court. Amicus, the mascot of the Supreme Court. My, I, I love that. I love him. I, I suspect amicus would be a largely ineffective amicus, <laughs> in, in part know. because no one could understand what they were saying behind that be costume. Like, <laughs> well, why? Why? Uh, so, <laughs> so it's very hot in here. I should mention that, listeners. It's we're getting to the silly season. So I suspect you would have a proxy uh, of a special advocate where these cases to come to pass. I don't personally think that's sufficient because the role of the amicus could be circumscribed by the court. They don't have a statutory mandate. They wouldn't necessarily have access to the full services in terms of a support unit that's available for special advocates. But the bottom line is there is some doubt on the margins about whether you could sustain the current listing process were it ever to be challenged. There's also, you know, some doubt that you were never given notice in advance of your listing, right, which is sort of a, a sort of a due process expectation that before the government does something to you that implicates your interests, they give you notice. The counter response to that is, well, how would you ever have found Osama bin Laden to give Osama bin Laden notice that they were about to list al-Qaeda? But still, there are some entities like IRFAN that presumably you could have given notice to in advance and have, have given them an opportunity to be heard before you listed them. Right. That, too, raises doubts about procedural fairness in terms of the listing process. These are all sort of technical objections, but they've never been tested, right? And so it will be interesting to see, as, as we see listing implicating groups with a stronger domestic nexus, whether they will proceed with challenges. The problem, of course, is going to be the same one that Irfan had, 
that one of the implications of being listed, beyond the fact that now people who give you money are ter doing terrorism financing, beyond the implication that people participating with you are engaged in the crime of terrorist participation, beyond the implications of those prospects for prosecution, there's a process under the criminal code that allows, in front of the federal court, the government to seek asset seizures. Right. They can freeze your assets, they can take away your property, and it's a, it's a civil proceeding. It's under the criminal code, but it's a civil proceeding, which means you don't have to have ever been actually successfully prosecuted for anything. The standard is not beyond a, a reasonable doubt. The standard is... Are you a terrorist entity? Well, the standard is the, sort of the classic civil standard of balance of probabilities. They, they can take away your assets and, and seize your assets. And that, it seems to me, is the most important implication of terrorism listing. And so if you have a domestic presence and you're now listed, and you have domestic assets, those should be snatched up on, under the process that's available under the criminal code, which isn't going to affect the al-Qaeda's of the world, right? But it might affect these entities that have more of a nameplate presence. So it seems like we have a listing process. We ha actually also have a delisting process now, because uh, famously, um, the MEK, which, be careful with my words here, <laughs> has been accused of being a, uh, a, a Iranian terrorist group along the lines of uh, being very anti-regime, was delisted by the Harper government. Um, and and so so, but we don't have an appeal process. There's actually a delisting process and an appeal process. The appeal process is the one I just described, where the yeah. entity itself can challenge the listing. But it has no resources, money, and potentially yeah. doing the, so yeah. could actually be a crime. Right. So it's a bit of a problem. Yeah. The UK <laughs> system, by the way, has a carve out for that. You, okay. You're allowed to access your assets for pur purposes of appealing your listing in the first place. So you're not caught in this impossible catch twenty two Kafka s situation. Uh, but there is actually also a, sort of an automatic review cycle. And so it used to be, I believe it was every two years now after C-59, this is one of the ch few changes that C-59 made to the criminal code, the review process is every five years because the government took the view, look, these groups are not being delisted effectively, so why are we going through the process every two years when it's just kind of largely pro forma? Yeah. And so now there's a delisting process that's every five years, which means that the listing has to be uh, reconsidered on the same standard. A reasonable grounds to believe, and most in most instances, uh, the exception you mentioned is a notable one. In most instances, the 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 listing is maintained and carries over from five year cycle to five year cycle. So, how does this all relate to the discussion we heard about the listing of far right groups on this list? Well, okay, so that it's, it, I think it's an interesting conversation, and it goes back to the conversation we had about, over about three or four podcasts about. Oh, what is a terrorist group? Yeah, what is why? a what is a terrorist, and what yeah. is what is a terrorist activity? Uh, because recall that to be a terrorist activity, it has to be motivated by religious, political, or ideological motives, at least in whole, whole or, or in part, part, right? And so the problem to this point is we have not had a prosecution for any of our terrorism offenses that invoked a, uh, a terrorism offense in relation to the right wing and right wing extremism. Notwithstanding that we've had acts of violence that were clearly tied to an extremist ideology, a neo-Nazi ideology, or the like. Uh, and so the Bork case, the Quebec City uh, mosque shooting, et cetera, there were clear ideological footprints, uh, right-wing extremism footprints, uh, in terms of the motive of those uh, individuals, and that was part of the court record, et cetera. Now, part of the reason, as we've said in the past, is that from a prosecutor's perspective, if, if the the person has engaged in murder or attempted murder, it's mandatory life minimum, there's no advantage to layering on additional crimes in, in order to you know, take other kicks at the can, if you will. However, there have been instances with right-wing entities who have engaged in criminal conduct for which the penalty is not a mandatory minimum of life, but rather something short of that, 
And one of the questions that I have been asking for many years is why, for instance, in relation to a neo-Nazi group like Blood and Honor that has engaged in criminal conduct, assaults, firearm offenses, up to the point of actually setting a man on fire, why in those instances there have not been charges that have invoked uh, a terrorist activity. And in fact, you, you can take a regular criminal code offense and you can say that that regular criminal code offense is also a terrorist activity because it has the ingredients of terrorist activity and that aggravates the sentencing to, to life. Right. And so we haven't seen that. Uh, and there's not been a good reason for that from a, from a black letter law perspective. And, yeah, and so I, what happens now if you start listing right-wing groups, then you presumably have now opened the door to a greater receptivity in treating their ideology as one that satisfies the prerequisites of terrorist activity, right? And so there's, a, there, there's now an, an, an opening in that respect because you have to have so concluded, right, to list them in the first place. You have to include, conclude that they've engaged in terrorist activity, which means you have to believe that their violence is motivated by uh, at least ideology, Right. Right. So, I mean, I, I guess just two things there. One is it, it's to I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't want to reopen this can of worms, but I think it's also the fact that like most of the far right um, offenses in Canada, which I think you correctly identify as, as terrorists, um, they've happened uh, right of boom. Um, and we've had the discussion as well that it's actually much harder in to to you know it's easier to prosecute someone for murder or attempted murder than it is actually um, uh, proving that they they were doing it for a particular cause. It just kind of adds the extra work. So I think there's that element there. So I don't think it's just a bias, but I think look the 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 whole list itself it's kind of weird that that you know it's it's so much of it is aimed at certain kind of um, ethnicities and groups and things like that without. You know, it, it, there there was this kind of I think far right blind spot on the list. So I welcomed the listing yeah. of this group. I think it was appropriate. No, I, I agree with you that the notorious cases not not just for have, diversity, have been, have been, but I actually think there there was a, an actual blind spot. I, I agree with you. I, yeah. I, I, the notorious cases, the one we've mentioned, Quebec City, Bork, yeah. uh, those have been right of boom. By which we mean that they've the act of violence has occurred, and it's a very serious act of violence, such that it attracts uh, life sentences. Uh, on the other hand, there have been a lot of other criminal uh, activities by these groups that have been violent, yes, but have not been murder or attempted murder, that have not attracted the same sort of scrutiny from a terrorism lens. Yes, so, I think that's right. So the TSAS, the Terrorism Security and Society uh, Network, which we're both part of, their database, which is now a little bit out of date, but their database suggested that 59% of so-called sole actor uh, attacks in Canada in the 15 years prior to 2015 14 had been uh, sparked by white supremacy motivations. Sure. Okay. Right. And that's a considerable number. And yep. none of them have resulted in any effort to glue the idea of terrorism to those assaults and other forms of violence that lie short of the sort of things that attract a mandatory life minimum. In other words, we've never used the terrorism label to aggravate the prospect of a longer sit sentence, which is, has been available since 2001 in the criminal code. Yep. And I agree. And I think that's that's an issue. So uh, to a certain extent, I think the listing signifies that we've crossed a Rubicon and we're willing to accept that a right-wing extremist ideology, which my personal view is we haven't recognized quite as readily as an extremist ideology, that that is the sort of ideology that also can attract the concept of terrorism activity. Right. 
So is that terrorist listings? That's terrorism listing. So okay. the question the question I have going forward is I'd be interested in knowing if Blood and Honor has any assets and whether those are being seized right now. I would hope that we're moving against assets. Yeah, I would hope that we're moving against assets regardless. Uh, giving this group's capacity is a, is a bad idea. Okay, so we move on to transparency? Sure. So we found out uh, this week that... Uh, the, well, Ralph Goodale announced that there would be a new advisory group on national security transparency, which is supposed to be advising on various initiatives the government has to be more transparent. When we look at the people who are on the board, and we should be very clear that, you know, one of us is a good friend, someone who's on the podcast last week, Tom, as you know, he he's on this board, and uh, as well as Best Mama Mommy, and uh, uh, Mary Francoli, who is someone I actually worked with at um, Royal Holloway in the United Kingdom, and now she's um, a, a dean here at, at Carleton University. So, um, and, and Khadija Kaji, who was on our podcast, he, she's the, one of the co-founders of the No Fly List Kids. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah, okay, she's great. on the list. And Justin Mohammed. And, uh, who, Justin, are you listening to the podcast? Anyway, he's a former student of mine from, oh. <laughs> the, from the University of Ottawa. Uh, so it's a the, the, certainly the people I know, either personally or by reputation. This is a this is a very credible group of individuals. Yeah. So the question is, what are they going to do? Um, That's and, the question. And, and we've not actually had a conversation so far, I don't think, in any great detail about the National Security Transparency Commitment. No. Which actually dates now. It's it's, it's about a year old, I think. i got to be honest with you. This Today might be the first day I've heard of it. <laughs> well, um. it was announced in, in, the, in, the, in the aftermath of the Green Paper consultation that led to C-59. Right, okay. Right, so there was this also this collateral consideration of transparency issues. There are six principles. And so maybe it's just worth rehearsing what the six principles are. Sure, because I, I honestly don't know what they are. So <laughs> principles one and two are information transparency. Departments and agencies will release information that explains the main element of their national security activities and the scale of those efforts. And departments and agencies will enable and support Canadians in accessing national security-related information to the maximum extent possible without compromising the national interest and national security uh, so those uh, relate to information transparency. There's also another set of two principles dealing with executive transparency. And so executive transparency principle three in the list, departments and agencies will explain how their national security activities are authorized in law and how they interpret and implement their authorities in line with Canadian values, including those expressed by the charter. And I, I want to come back to this one. Like this one's my big one. Right. Uh, big one how? In the sense that so much of what's done under the auspices of national security is difficult to predict from publicly available statutes and case law because it's interpreted and construed through legal advice within government that you never get to see. Oh, and this is your secret law project. This is my secret law issue. Okay, well, Or there's ministerial directions or internal protocols or guidelines right. or directives that are well, if you can, you can A-tip them and usually get them, but unless you A-tip and get them, you don't have them. And so it's very difficult to draw a straight line often from what the statute says and what the service is doing, even though once you see all the information, you can kind of see how they got there. Yeah, At least sometimes. Dots, sometimes right? you see what they, how they got there and you say, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't know how you got there. <laughs> right? Still don't agree. There was a sausage that was made. So the whole point is that you should be able to see how they got there or else you have non-transparent law. And in a system predicated on the rule of law, the idea of secret law or non-disclosed law, is anathema, right? And, you know, the Department of Justice will say all the advice we give is clothed in solicitor-client privilege, privilege, which is true, but solicitor-client privilege in a public law setting means something very different than if I were in private practice giving advice on how you draft your contract to a corporation, right? It seems to get going back to the, the problem of the dual hat of the uh, no. Minister of Justice. We won't, we'll talk, we won't name any 
particular person or yeah. individual in that. But the idea that you're the minister of justice, but you're also uh, the solicitor. For yeah, the... I, you don't get away from that. If yeah. you, even if you were to carve away the attorney general and the minister no of justice. Um, and by the way, uh, as a collateral matter, I don't think that's a good idea. I think that there are other ways to to guard the independence of the attorney general, including articulating exactly what the Shawcross principles mean. This, okay, we're not, we're we're not, not going there. We're yeah. not. Because no, there not are at least podcast. three versions of the Shawcross principles, and depending on your political perspective, you might choose one or other of them. And so codify them. All right. So principle three is a big one, right? Okay. It's 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 very, very important for the reasons we've just discussed. Right. Principle four. Departments and agencies will explain what guides their national security-related decision-making in line with Canadian values, including those expressed by the Charter. And then uh, the last two principles govern policy transparency. And so principle five, the government will inform Canadians of the strategic issues impacting national security and its current efforts and future plans for addressing those issues, i.e., you know, that public reports, the public reports the yeah. ter- on the terrorism threat, yeah. even things like intelligence priorities. We know more about that process thanks to the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. That's such a good, yeah. Again, uh, um, that's a that was actually a really interesting, well, interesting by my standards. <laughs> yes. Uh, document. So, uh, but that, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good thing, and it'll be interesting to see what NCRA comes up now that C fifty nine is in place. Yeah, and then the last one, principle six: to the extent possible, the government will consult stakeholders and Canadians during the development of substantive policy proposals and build transparency into the design of national security programs and activities. And that goes to the conversation we had with Minister Goodale about the green paper process. Uh, in terms of it allowing consultation on important issues of national security, in that case law, yeah. that brought in uh, a number of stakeholder and, and broader public perspectives that probably made for an enhanced process. I think C-59 is, was, you know, and I think I said that um, during that podcast, C-59 is a model for that, you know, having broad, you know, treating national security like any other policy, which I think it should be the prima facie strategy before we start moving to exceptional methods. But let me ask you about the first two. So the first one is on information transparency. You've been doing, you do a lot of ATIPs and they've been coming faster? Mm. Okay. It's hit Uh, and miss. It really (laughs) depends on the department. Yeah, so I mean, there's some departments that are clearly laggards and there are other departments that are a little bit prompter. But the problem with ATIP is it's, it's it's like fishing, right? Um, You might get a sense that there's something somewhere but you're not sure, and so you file your ATIP and you phrase it in a manner that's not so broad that you'll end up consuming huge amounts of search hours and they'll try to bill you a ridiculous amount, but not so narrow that you know one word either way means you'll never get the yeah, document, right? right? So the problem with transparency through ATIP is it's, it's pretty much like throwing darts blindfolded. And there are a handful of instances where you know a document exists. <laughs> yeah, potentially perilous. <laughs> right. um, there are a handful of instances where you know a document is exists and you want to get a uh, redacted copy. And so examples of that, so CSE files an annual report, a classified annual report with the Minister of National Defense every year, right? That's no pro- not proactively disclosed in redacted form, and so you have to A-tip it. And it's actually really interesting, right? We should talk about it because I have the the ones for the last two years. And, you know, it's all heavily redacted, but there's enough substance in there that I think is responsive to these transparency initiatives that gives you an understanding of what CSE really does that could be proactively disclosed. And so A-tip, yeah, not so helpful, right? Delays and just that throwing darts problem. So we're not, So basically we're not doing great on the whole proactive part. We're doing better, okay. right? Uh, but we're not. We're not. I think. I, I think it de- depends what you mean by great, right? So there's also gradations of transparency, right? So uh, there's there's transparency vis-a-vis the general public, 
Um, and so any reports can usually address in broad terms, you know, what is the service does. And then there's transparency at a very granular level, the, level, the kind of things that you and I like talking about. Right, right. the numbers. We're probably never going to be yeah. happy, right? As, as no. listeners of our podcast know from our grading. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, but even in the granular area. So the, the level of detail, say, in the NZCOP report yeah. is, is pretty significant rel- relative yeah. to the sort of level of granularity you would find in executive branch reports. So, you know, there's a bit of a mismatch there, and I guess it depends on deciding who your audience is. Um, and so part of the problem is if you're speaking to a general public audience and you're trying to be transparent, you might be a little bit more, well, sweeping, I suppose, than if you are the NZCOP and you're actually filing a report with the prime minister. And there you would expect that there would be a greater emphasis on uh, granularity. Yeah. So a, a lot of the transparency and what it means in practice, I think, is, is really going to depend on the perspective that the government brings to these questions and also now informed by this advisory body. And so exactly what the advisory body will do vis-a-vis the transparency principles, it's not clear to me. Um, the one really interesting thing, I saw Bill Robinson, who is, uh, again, I would, I'm going to call him a friend of the podcast. He has a great blog where he, you know, posts information about the CSE. Uh, he's a very thoughtful critic. I really enjoy reading his work. He raises the question, are they actually going to hear submissions? Because he said, uh, in a lot of ways, CSC has actually become less transparent rather than more transparent over the years in the way it's reporting its information. I, I'm not entirely sure what he's referring to, but that's a really interesting question. So mm-hmm. will this body actually hear from, you know, again, the thoughtful critics who are saying that, you know, this is how things have become more opaque over the years and we need to roll this back a bit. Yeah, not 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 clear to me. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the extent to which this... There's not a lot of transparency around the transparency board. Well, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just, I mean, I, those of uh, our friends who are listening to the podcast who are on the transparency board can tell us what they've been charged with doing. It's a voluntary commitment, by the way. It's yeah. not it's not paid. But, I, I, again, I'm not going to criticize it. I think it's very worthwhile. Oh, 100%. And, and, and the yeah. principles are really important. And I want to underscore, again, the idea of the secret law and, and sort of pushing back on secret law which for me is it's been a huge problem in the states it's also a huge problem here uh, and for but this those... is how you get like the FISA warrant problem, right? Because all this law is done kind of in secret, you know, basically authorities that are kind of granted behind doors and things like that. And then suddenly you find out, oh, you have a wiretap program that, you know, is basically yeah. like surveying all it, kinds it, of crazy data. Predicated on assumptions and the assumptions themselves are doubtful. But you end up with, in the worst instance, in my view, you end up with an inverted house of cards, mm. right? It's fragile and it's built on a very shallow base. And that base, if you remove it, if you pull it out, you know, one misunderstanding or disputable perspective on the charter and all this architecture that you've built on that slender supposition, it all collapses, right? And so we've seen examples of this. To a certain extent, ODAC, the retention by by CSIS of metadata related to non-threat targets collected incidentally over the course of uh, surveying through warrants targets, that ODAC program was predicated on an understanding, an assumption about the reach of the CSIS Act, never tested. And, and the, also that program grew in leaps and bounds right. in ways and that so had never he, been hence, hence the inverted card analogy, yeah. Tower of Cards. Right. So you have a, a, a narrow use at the beginning upon which then a broader program is predicated. You end up with something that the federal court comes along and pulls that base card out and the whole thing collapses. And so you don't want to get to that point. And you have to, it seems to me, one of the problems we have is that rather than trying to correct the shortcomings in our legislative scheme, we like to do the inverted Tower of Cards thing. Uh, And if there were more transparency, 
presumably you would have people with different views who are saying, what are you doing? Um, and you really need to fix this legislatively. Yeah. So is that transparency? Yeah. Again, I think it's an excellent initiative and we'll wait and see how it plays out in practice. Look, some of the initiatives that you know we, we've had to say wait and see have actually turned out to be pretty good. I would say NSI COP is definitely one of those. Um, so I'll, I'll have hope. That, that this works well. I'll be I'll be the non-cynical academic today. Okay, great. Great. What does that make me? The other non-cynical You're academic. You're Craig. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, I thought we would just briefly mention the story that was in the newspaper. So basically in the story, um, and I should say it's actually uh, three individuals who wrote the story, Craig Silverman, Alex Boudelier, and Jane Litvinenko, all who have done really interesting work on disinformation in recent years. Um, they say... Uh, CSIS has basically confirmed that threat actors are seeking to influence the Canadian public and interfere with Canada's democratic institutions and processes. Um, and, you know, I think for a lot of people, have CSIS actually come out and say that really meant something. Now, you know, it's interesting because earlier this year, the CSE basically came out and said effectively the same thing that they assessed with 80% or, or above confidence that they believe that there's going to be forward influence in the election from a cyber perspective. And that's as good as a bullseye as you're going to get in the intelligence world. So, you know, I, I don't think we should flip out too much about this. And I don't think we've seen that much flipping out, which is which is a good thing. I think it's important that the story came out because um, we, we haven't really had that much in the way of an update. And so I've been answering a lot of questions with regards to, okay, well, what does this mean? Who are these actors? Um, look, the, the actors haven't been confirmed. I would say that there's pro it's probably Russia and China, um, the leads on this file. China is interesting in this case. I mean, Russia, I think we kind of know what Russia does. It, it disrupts. It tries to uh, hack into emails and these kinds of things. China probably is a more of a traditional espionage component. Uh, I think it's actually probably interested in what the different political parties think about Huawei and uh, the Meng Wanzhou case and all those kinds of things. So it would actually be, you know, wanting to know where the different parties are in China. But in addition, I think China does is, is also... Um, going to be interested in doing things like, you know, it already, Chinese friendly entities already control a lot of the state, you know, the Chinese language media in this country, Canada land has done very good reporting on that. Others, uh, the WeChat phenomenon, which of course is, is pretty Beijing friendly in terms of the content that goes on it. So you worry about foreign influence that way. This story seems to be reflecting more or less uh, concerns about probing of political party systems. So I would strongly suspect that it's going to be someone like uh, Russia, uh, who because that's the kind of thing that they do. And certainly that's something we saw with regards to the, the Democratic National Convention hack uh, way back in, in 2016. But there's other actors in this space as well. So you have Saudi Arabia, Iran, Venezuela, they've all been fingered. Uh, there's increasingly allegations about India in this space. Um, I, I think India's a little bit of the odd man out, um, They whether or not they're, they're kind of targeting diaspora. For, uh, and certainly we saw allegations between the lines in the NSI COP report that these kinds of activities are taking place. But um, and, and what's interesting is they're, they're also the odd man out because they would be the only ones interested in a political party succeeding, uh, which would probably be because there's a close relationship between Modi and, and the Conservative Party in Canada. But none of this has been proven. We have no idea if that's actually happening at all. What is more interesting, I think, is that it's probably, um, you know, if it is, if it is Russia... What is it and what are their motivations? Again, I think it's probably learning various uh, 
policy positions with the traditional espionage angle. The second thing would be um, trying to steal the emails and dump them out, doing strategic leaks that we saw not just in the United States, but also in the French uh, election and other countries as well. Uh, one of the things I worry about is also just trying to probe the systems to learn how the various, you know, the people within the political parties talk to each other and then trying to create forgeries um, that then get on the internet through a, a channel such as WikiLeaks or something like that that they can put forward that would then um, basically try and suggest that, that something had taken place. And, and forgeries is something that, you know, the Soviet Union did. And uh, Putin coming from that tradition would not surprise me if he was engaging in that behavior as well. Um, so that those are the kinds of things that I think you worry about um, from this perspective. But at the same time, you know, we've been told that this is coming um, it's not a surprise that it's here. It sounds like uh, the CSE has been given technical briefings. We knew that in advance. Um, you know, we were talking to Elections Canada to a certain extent about this as well, that you need to have CSE advising political parties on how to protect their systems and protect their data. They don't do the protection, right? The protection has to, they, the, the political parties have to actually go out and spend the money themselves, something they don't want to do. They want to spend the money on uh, like HGTV ads and, um, you know, ads during sporting events, because that's what gives them results, not necessarily cybersecurity. They don't really necessarily see that. So that's something that they still need to work on. So this is, a, I think, a developing story. I should also note, finally, that uh, Leah West and Mike Nesbitt were quoted uh, by uh, the same group of reporters today, because they were saying, you know, they were asking, well, could we actually stop this? Could we prosecute people for doing this? And their answer is, well, technically, yes, but the chances are of getting these people to Canada would be very slim. Right. Yeah. And we've arrived at similar conclusions in some of our conversations. Yeah. Uh, and we discussed actually with the chief electoral officer, the prospect of prosecuting for electoral offenses, uh, foreign based actors. Yeah. And not not likely. Not I, likely. I still think the bigger challenge is going to be um, domestic extremists in the election. Right. You know, because that's a freedom of speech question. And um, the the where, where I think the national security nexus rises is, you know, a, attempts to artificially inflate domestic extremists. If, if someone is, you know, in their basement, you know, making kind of crude memes or whatever that is, and then there's a foreign attempt to kind of amplify those voices and suppress maybe more mainstream voices, that I think is a national security concern. But how the government's going to draw the, the line on that um, is going to be really difficult, I think. Yeah, so stay tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs> okay. Anyways, so there we go. That's uh, three issues. And I'll just end by saying, um, you know, the other day I was looking at the reviews that we have for our podcast and they're so nice. So and, and I, my favorite ones are the ones that say things like, you know, I don't actually know anything about this topic, but I just like learning so much. So, you know, that's that was really sweet. So thanks to the people who wrote things like that. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate and review us. I feel like we have to say this because all the other podcasts say this rate and review us on iTunes. And I you know, keep meaning to say it more and more and I just keep forgetting. So please, you know, it's, it's July. If you're hopefully under the a tree in the shade, drinking a cold one, and you're on your iPhone, please rate and review us on iTunes. But we will be back. Uh, we have some plans for July. We're going to do a couple more episodes before taking our August break. Uh, we are thinking about our season three. We have some ideas in the works, and we'll probably announce some, some cool plans. Some cool plans. Uh, so we'll we'll have that conversation in September. But in the meantime, our best for the beginning of the summer season. It is very hot, and I hope you're enjoying it. Bye-bye.